This week, we are ending our series on the Lord's Prayer. I hope that you have found it as rich and meaningful as I have as we consider this way that Jesus taught us to pray. It is clearly a way that we are supposed to pray. These are words that we're supposed to speak. But they're also words that we speak, prayer that moves us now into action as we respond as kingdom people in the world, just as Jesus did. Last week, Ashlyn preached an absolutely fantastic sermon on the line, Forgive Us Our Sins. And if you missed it, I have to just put in the plug, you need to go find it, you need to listen to it. Um, her sermon, though, are captured this this double action of the prayer of Jesus, the way in which we pray it and we speak it, but we also do it, and we are also called to live in it. Her sermon helped me see this as a way in which prayer is asking and action. In her sermon, she she's right there, yes, I know. In Ashlyn's sermon, to remind you, she spoke of the parable of the unforgiving servant. It is a parable that Jesus tells and, and talks about this, this servant who, who comes to the king with an astronomical debt against him. And the king forgives that debt. And the servant walks out the door, forgiven of the debt, finds somebody who owes him a couple bucks and loses it on him. How could you do this to me? I, I, was, I was just replaying that image in my mind again of, of what it... Why, why? What is the personal feeling of like, I have to get this? Like, how, did, how could you slight me in that way? How could you disrespect me? And now I'm going to forget all about the forgiven, the massive debt that has been forgiven to me, and now I'm going to pass it on to another. But the line that Ashlyn shared with us that has just stuck with me is the, that the king didn't find the servant's debt wicked. What got the king upset was the inability of his servant to forgive others. You read the story, it's not the debt that makes the king lose it. It's the fact that he forgave somebody and then that person goes out and doesn't live in his kingdom way. And so we see in the Lord's Prayer that it doesn't just make sense if it's just about our personal piety, if it's only about my conscience. It, it is a prayer that speaks of the new day when justice and peace come together, when there is good news for all people, economically, socially, spiritually, personally. The church, then, is this advance sign of the kingdom of God, of this great forgiveness. The church prays and acts for justice and mercy and truth and peace. It is a community that is defined by the way it lives out that life of forgiveness. And so N.T. Wright says, as we pray for this world, let us be alert to new visions of what the living God wants us to aim at in our society. Now, it has been suggested that if there's an image for this line, forgive us our sins in the Bible, it should be that of the running father in Luke 15. To speak of forgiveness is to envision the father running towards you, welcoming you home, clothing you, embracing you, kissing you. The beloved has come home. The father celebrates. 
It's the image of forgiveness. But now we come to this last line of the prayer. The one that, for those of you who are regularly here and we regularly pray the Lord's Prayer, this is the line where you go, that's not what I learned in school, or that's not the way I learned it in kids' club, right? You know, if we say, holy is your name instead of hallowed your name, you're like, yeah, I get it. If we say sins or debts, you're like, we're sure. Is it Matthew? Is it Luke? Right? Well, you know, we, we understand, Nathan, you're, you're changing some words. But, but when we come to this last line of the Lord's Prayer, instead of saying, lead us not into temptation, we say, save us from the time of trial, which is admittedly very different. And so it's nice that I finally have a chance to defend myself and, and the choice of language. Save us from the time of trial. Why? Why would we say that instead of lead us not into temptation? Well, for one, this is my very quick answer to anybody asked. James 1, 1.13 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So I'm like, well, God clearly isn't going to like lead you into temptation. That's not something God does. God isn't one who wants to trip you up, isn't looking to set booby traps to make you fall and, and to see if you are a sinful person or if you actually love him. That doesn't make sense. God isn't a tempter. Our words matter because what we say and how we describe God will form within us an image of what God is like. Is God a God who's setting out booby traps to try and make you fall? No. I can do that plenty well. I don't need God to lead me into temptation. I've got lots of that just living in my own heart. I can find a million ways to sin without God trying to trick me or lead me that way. Instead, when I was crafting the, the Lord's Prayer that we would pray every week, I worked off N.T. Wright's translation. And in his translation of the Gospel of Matthew, he says this, Don't bring us into the great trial, but rescue us from evil. In his book on the Lord's Prayer, he translates it a little differently again. He says, Do not let us be led to the test. Deliver us from evil. The word temptation can mean tribulation, or it can mean testing. And so when we were walking through our series on Exodus a while ago, we, we did a whole sermon on the tests in the wilderness. And what we saw in that story is not that God placed tests in front of Israel to see whether or not they would be faithful or not, but rather the circumstances of the world that they lived in, being in a desert, meant that there were situations that arise that caused problems. No water, no food. Those are not God placing people or leading them into temptation, but simply the realities of a broken world in which things are not good. And, and we run into these circumstances all the time, these testings. And the question is, what do we do now? Will we be faithful and obedient? Will we trust God in this situation when life seems to be falling apart? Or will I turn and grumble like Israel? Will I complain? And if, if the, the request is, God, save me from these trials, is I walk through the desert, Lord, will you save me from famine? Would you save me from walking this way of drought? 
of course we want God to save us from those. So if the image for the forgiveness of sins is a running father, let me suggest to you that the image for us today to consider in this line of the Lord's Prayer is that of Mary, the mother of Jesus. This image of Mary giving birth to Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. This prayer, this line, like everything in Jesus' life, is situated within the story of Israel and the story of Jesus. In the first century, Israel believed that their job was to be light in the darkness, that the whole world would grow darker and darker and darker until there was this period, this moment of tribulation, of sorrow, of anguish. And then in that moment when everything got so dark that there was no hope and and everyone was crying out, in that moment, like a woman in labor, bursting out of this new darkness, would come new life. In which God's kingdom would come, justice and peace would come as one, heaven and earth would be joined, and God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isaiah foresees it as a time in which lion and lamb, snake and child are laying together, could play together. This moment was coming. What the people in the first century didn't see was the way in which in Jesus' life that story would be lived out. That all around Jesus, things would grow darker and darker. God's own creation would try to tempt and test Jesus. They would ultimately kill the creator and author of life. And when the author of life dies, surely it must be as dark as it can be. Hope dies. Fear conquers. But Jesus is faithful in the face of this trial. Jesus prays and stares evil in the face. And Jesus is obedient to death. And so Jesus taught his disciples to pray that they would not be brought into the time of trial, of tribulation. He taught them to watch and pray so that they wouldn't fall when that moment comes. And when that moment of darkness and tribulation and trial comes in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus accepts the answer. He prays to be saved from a time of trial, and he receives the answer, no. And so Jesus experiences death. And by his death, he destroys death and sin. And the powers of hell are defeated at his resurrection. I think along the lines of N.T. Wright, that we must acknowledge that that this was Jesus' unique job, not all of our jobs. Jesus was the one who was led into this tribulation and was not delivered from evil so that we may all be delivered. One German theologian, who I'm not going to attempt his name, once said, Jesus was called to throw himself on the wheel of world history so that even though it crushed him, it might start turning in the opposite direction. I was just picturing in my mind all day these gears that are just going this way, and, and Jesus lays himself on the gears of world history, and it grinds to a stop, and it begins to turn the other way, and it begins to build momentum as the kingdom of God now advances, and life bursts out of the tomb, and 
the world is changed. There's a uniqueness to the call of Jesus. Where he goes, we are not called to go. And so Jesus teaches us to pray that we'd be delivered from the time of tribulation and the power of evil. And now we can pray that with the confidence that Jesus has, in fact, defeated death, has defeated evil. But here we are again. I don't know how many times we keep bumping into this strange reality in which we declare and stand with the hope of defeated evil, the belief that Jesus is the fulfillment of that messianic hope that there was confidence that Jesus himself has like defeated evil. And then we stand with the reality of the broken world that we live in on the other hand. Greg talked about it two weeks ago. Ashland talked about it last week. And here we are once again stuck between a broken world and the hope of Jesus. And sometimes it all feels distant. Sometimes we feel ourselves overwhelmed and destroyed by temptation, testing, and trial. So how do we respond? Let me suggest that there were three ways that the, the people around Jesus responded, and we see them still playing out today. You have the Sadducees. They took this approach of, of just kind of minimizing evil, sticking their heads in the sand, pretending like it doesn't exist. It doesn't matter. Let's not worry about evil. You have the Essenes who ran off into the desert. They, they mirror the approach of the Sadducees, but in a very different way. Instead, they saw evil everywhere. They wallowed in it. Sometimes uh, everything seems evil. With, if that's your approach to life, two things tend to happen. W one, you just become evil yourself. It's a classic, like, if you can't beat them, join them. I'm just going to become an evil person. The other one is to live dominated by fear and to say, there's a demon behind every bush. I can't do yoga. I might bend over and do a position, and it'll be infested with demons. Either way you look at it, the, the result is the same, that you become overwhelmed by fear of evil. It dominates your mind and it dominates your thinking. The third approach was that of the Pharisees. It's the answer of self-righteousness. Well, Lord, at least thank you, I'm not evil. Let me weed out the evil in my community. Let me be the righteous police to make sure that everybody else is being as holy as I am. It is the zealousness to fight evil. Jesus doesn't take any of those paths. Instead, Jesus wants us not only to see the reality of the world, evil, the reality of evil in the world and in us, but also the reality of Jesus' victory over evil. So we don't just wallow in evil, we don't just get caught up in evil, we don't just seek to be the righteous police. We recognize the reality of evil, but also Jesus' victory over evil evil. Evil's real. We don't pretend it isn't. Evil is not only out there, but it is in here, in our hearts. Evil also exists in the totality of all of our evil impulses put together, which is disappointing. But when we worship things that are not God, 
We give authority over to these destructive forces that gain power in our institutions, in our countries. They have more power than the sum of their parts. Our, our MB confession captures this really well in Article 5. It says, Sin opens individuals and groups to the bondage of demonic principalities and powers. These powers also work through political, economic, social, and even religious systems to turn people away from holiness, justice, and righteousness. I've been seeing that at work, right? There are situations where I can look at, and I can look at every individual involved in a situation and a decision, and I'm just confused how it didn't work. Something bad happened, even though every individual was like, well, like, you, you, but we got this result, right? Why is it that our Embry Confession says this happens even in churches? Our churches, our institutions can end up in places that need the resurrection and saving of Jesus. Because we can end up in places where we are turning away from holiness, justice, and righteousness. And it's beyond just the individuals involved, but the wholeness, the collective of what happens when we are allowing these powers authority. So as Christians, we do believe in an evil spiritual reality, that it exists in this world. Jesus taught that there is an enemy bent on the destruction of God's good world and his beloved children. But at the same time, we do not live in fear or see a demon behind every bush, or be, we're not afraid that we're going to become possessed by some accidental way. Instead, we pray and we live this prayer trusting in the victory of God, and that God is indeed the one who has bound the strong man, and the God, it says in the Gospel of Mark. And so I love this line from N.T. Wright, so I'm going to read it two times because it's so good. He says, to pray, deliver us from evil, or from the evil one, is to inhale the victory of the cross and thereby hold the line for another moment, another hour, another day against the forces of destruction within ourselves and the world. To pray, deliver us from evil, is to inhale the victory of the cross and thereby hold the line for another moment, another hour, another day against the forces of destruction within ourselves and the world. And so, back to Mary. Mary stands for us as the image of our roles in this world and in prayer. We are invited to share in Mary's pain, and the pain of being the bearers of God into the world. Mary's yes to the invitation of God to bear Jesus into the world was a costly yes. I actually can't even really fully imagine from myself. I'm a white man living in, you know, Western Canada. But I can't imagine that she, in her saying yes to God, it cost her her reputation. It cost her her status as a godly woman. It cost her her credibility and standing in her community. It would have cost her most of her relationships, 
It would have cost her, it almost cost her her relationship with Joseph. I can only imagine the fear, the shame, the doubt that must have kept her up at night. The anxiety attacks as she wondered whether or not she would be raising this child alone. Yet those fears, the pain, were not enough to stop her yet. Mary is an example for all of us who are called to bear Christ into our broken world. We struggle. We face fears. We suffer hardships. And in doing so, we inhale and exhale the victory of Jesus. A Jewish writer, Ben Sira, said, My child, if you come to serve the Lord, prepare yourself for testing. This doesn't mean that God is testing us, but it is a hope and a prayer that God will enable us to speak like Mary and say, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me just as you have said. And when we pray like Mary, let it be in me just as you have said, we face the evil of this world head on. We do not hide from it, pretending it doesn't exist. We do not allow it to consume our thoughts, and we do not become overly righteous or smug in our own purity, but we face the realities of the trials of this world and the evil in it, and we say yes to God's victory. We say yes to letting God's kingdom give birth in us. We say yes to following Jesus to Gethsemane, even if we don't know why, and even if our hope and prayer is to avoid that trial. So to paraphrase right to close, he says, to pray this prayer is to say yes to the job of going to the places of pain to share it in the name of Jesus. It is to hold that pain prayerfully in the presence of the God who wept in Gethsemane and died on Calvary. We are called to live and pray at the place where the world is in pain so that the hopes and fears, the joy and the pain of the whole world may become by the Spirit and are in our own experience the hope, fear, joy, and pain of God. By giving us this prayer then, Jesus invites us to walk ahead into the darkness and discover that it too belongs to God. Amen. And so I would just invite you to stand with me and let's pray together this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial, deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, now and forever. Amen. You can be seated if you'd like.